This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are our interviews with the Academy Award nominees for Avatar The Way of Water. First up, we have Zoe Rose Bryant's interview with the visual effects supervisor Richard Bainham. Then Emma Sasek's interview with the production designers Ben Proctor and Dylan Cole. And then Will Mavity's interview with sound mixer Julian Hallworth and sound editor Gwendolyn Yates-Whittle. We hope you enjoy this behind-the-scenes look at Avatar The Way of Water. Why do you come to us? I want to keep my family safe. Treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up, Forest Boy! If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe. Breathe. So, well, yeah, I'm Zoe Rose Bryant from Next Best Picture. So happy to be talking with you today. And lovely to meet you, Zoe. So I think the first thing I wanted to ask was, I know that this has been a sequel in development for a very long time. (laughs) That's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. I was curious how long you have been actually working on it. You know, like when the development for you started. Oh, well, okay. So uh, now we're going back. So uh, I started this process in 2005. With, with, so that'll give you some context. Uh, when we were doing Dev for the first movie, mm-hmm. uh, I met, met Jim back then and, we did, and he, we were, he was midway through a test. Um, with, and it was with ILM originally. Mm-hmm. And, and we were fortunate enough to work with ILM on the first movie and the second movie as well. Um, so we had some great, uh, great participation there. But Weta became the, the primary vendor, and I had uh, previously been at Weta. I was head of animation down there for for a while uh, for a couple movies, and uh, the Lord of the Ring movies. And mm-hmm. um, so uh, there's there's everything is contextual. Jim had seen you know the, the Gollum performance and believed it was time we could uh, you know he could break out Avatar and get it done. So uh, based on that conversation, I came on. Um, like I said, 2005 looked at the test, and we started in earnest in 2006 uh, development for the first one. Obviously, we released 2009. Uh, we had a, a little success in 2010. <laughs> we had a run uh, that went very well, and then um, ultimately we 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 stuck around on our relationship. You know, sustained, and we um, we actually built a park with Disney. Um, and Jim went off and dove to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Uh, so, uh, and I, I would say, let's see, 14, 15, by 14, 15, we were, you know, we were sort of full in development of, uh, of, you know, two, three, Jim was hot and heavy on the scripts, um, you know, uh, at some point, I, I, I'm assuming 16, 17, but I'd have to get some real dates for you. By the time we came back in earnest and started shooting, te- shooting, testing, shoot, uh, that is that has to be i have to be able to form that sentence a little better by the time we started to test shoot on movie two um i think the very first test i did down in new zealand uh was 2016 and we were we and again that had everything to do with evolving the the system that we we had uh, come up with on the first movie we're trying to get it to a point where the process was simplified uh, we, we, for all intensive purposes, we made the movie twice on the first movie. We made it in template form and we turned it over to Weta, who have been amazing partners. Uh, and they had to rebuild those files to recreate where we had left off in order to start in earnest um, looking towards finaling shots. Uh, this time around, 
we we really uh, you know sort of delved into that development process and tried to uh, create a partnership rather than a client vendor relationship. Um, and so we lean heavily on their software and we've managed to bring it forward to our stages here and make it part of the shoot process and with the with the end goal of it being a single step process. We we were able to take our files, deliver them to Weta, they're open, they open them up on their side and and can start there. Truly, you know, sort of we have, still have an evolutionary path to go in that process, but there was a substantial step forward. No, great answer, great answer. Um, what's the biggest like leap forward in technology that you've noticed between working on the first film and now the second? Well, look, the core idea for for making the movies was was in place off of one. Um, I think the big leap forward is facial. Um, you know, again, I'll take it back all the way to Gollum. Um, on the first, you know, sort of Lord of the Rings movies, we really had to get in and do a lot, a key, a lot of keyframe. Uh, the Andy Serkis gave us a a cornerstone performance, but we were we had to be selective. I had to be selective about the animators that worked on it in order to create a consistency of character. Um, you know, by movie one, that, that same rig was in place, um, and it, the the one we had evolved for for uh, for Gollum, and we were able to really push and achieve. But there was a lot of capture input, or there was a lot of hand, you know, keyframe animation on top, uh, in order to bring uh, Zoe's character to life. Um, so Natiri and Jake really were sort of the the key players in movie one. So it wasn't once we cracked those two models. We, we were able to make that movie. But by the time we realized the scope of the cast in this movie, it's an ensemble cast with, you know, a lot of different characters. Joe Leteri down at Weta had, uh, you know, sort of really dove into trying to evolve the facial capture um, and, and put a team together uh, to look at a completely different way to approach it than we had in the first one. Really to value sort of from a neural network, a learning system as to how each face worked. Because our basic physiognomy is the same, but the idiosyncrasies of each individual face and how which muscles fire first and in what order and how they they pull on each other and where the secondary uh, sympathetic motions are from, from muscle to muscle uh, is different in every face. And that's ultimately, you know, you can go out and find somebody who looks like Humphrey Bogart on Hollywood Boulevard today. But I can't get them to make Humphrey Bogart's choices. So for us, valuing the actor's choices, really, you know, sort of leaning on uh, Zoe and Sam and all the cast, Sigourney in this one. I mean, uh, it shocks me, to be honest, Zoe, that um, no one's talking about, you know, and I will be coy, as in I I, I can't reveal or shouldn't reveal uh, Sig's age, but she's an older woman. And she's playing a 12, 14-year-old girl. Mm. And, you know, if if that was done with prosthetic makeup, I don't doubt for a moment that mm. she would be on every acting nomination. Uh, to, to, for it to go untalked about is ludicrous to me, you know, because we, we are 100% dependent on those performances in order to bring the characters to life on screen. And, and in fact, we do everything we can to protect and shepherd that, that the those actors' choices, uh, you know, all the way to the final product. Yeah, and that's really admirable because I do think I I always hate when it just gets branded as like a voiceover performance because you watch the behind the scenes footage and it's it's full bodied immersion into the character and like you said with Sigourney, like what she's doing in that transformation is just so insane. It, it's it, really- it's performance capture. It is it, like there is motion capture. And we you know if we go back to the time when we did Gollum, we did motion capture. But by the time we evolved the, the, the process on movie one, uh, it was truly performance capture. Now, with the with the stereo um, pair on, on the head rig, we're actually re- recording not just the facial performance. We're actually recording or able to rebuild a, a depth map um, for the face to understand exactly where the face is. So so as we as we you know sort of evolve the character. We constantly refer back to a, a mesh, uh, essentially a, a topographical mesh of the actor's face and, and it moving frame by frame. And we're able to layer over our characters to see where we're different. So to make sure we honor the, 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 not just the choices, but the muscle set, you know, and the behaviors. So it's, it is a, it's an endeavor. And it's a, Jim often says it, it's a crazy way to make a movie. Nobody should, should do this unless, they, unless there's no other way. And the truth is, to make these movies come alive, there wasn't any other way. 
we didn't have a choice in in how we we wanted to try achieve these movies. This was the was the single avenue that we we had to uh, hack our way down the path and and create a sort of a a new a new version of of filmmaking in some ways. Yeah, that's incredible. And aside from the advancement in the facial, you know, mapping and everything, I know the biggest other element in this film is water. And, you know, <laughs> doing with that. Yes, it is. <laughs> I was curious what the biggest complication on your end was of integrating that into your work. Well, look, the very first step was good just capturing in water. You know, mm-hmm. like, like, like literally to take what we do in this air volume here, it, it, you, what you're looking at here on stage is uh, essentially an IR uh, system, which is it's passing infrared light blasted it from each of these cameras. Although they're, we call them cameras, they're, they're actual, actually they're optical sensors and they're, they're blasting light and receiving light to tell um, where in space an object is. And that gives us a, a very specific orientation. That idea basically leads to being able to capture to, you know, um, surface data on a character, and then turn that internalize that into <laughs> inverse biokinematic data, which gives us a skeleton. Um, and, and once you have a skeleton, and you have motion on the skeleton, well, now we can transfer it to any character. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in a lot of ways, that that that's the value of a system like that. Now, to take this and put it underwater, uh, it presents multiple challenges. Uh, two, we are wholly and completely dependent on the cleanliness of the data. So even if uh, on the first movie, particularly, if somebody brought up a, a water bottle on set and left it um, inadvertently down, well, you know, the light spectrum, the light that's blasted from the cameras would bounce back off the surface of the water, even in a bottle, and it creates a contamination. So water was always our enemy. And then Jim, uh, you know, announces we're going to, we're going to capture the whole thing in water. So uh, ultimately what we did was we had to try to understand what light passed through water best. And, and we ended up in an ultraviolet, a, a UV spectrum, um, the, uh, you know, blue, you know, the blues kind of in that spectrum pass or travel much further in water than, than any other chromatic um, representation. So we ended up, uh, like once we solved what light spectrum, then we had to try, okay, well, now we, we, we know we can capture underwater. So we, cre- we built uh, submersible cases for the cameras and we did a little test. Um, and th- truly, the, the problem wasn't capturing underwater, Zoe. It's capturing in the water volume. Um, so ultimately, our actors don't act underwater, albeit there are some scenes. For the most part, a lot of the acting takes place in the interface. So part of the body below the water, part of the body above the water, and they're at the sort of, the, the the behest of the water surface and its behavior. So uh, we obviously built a huge tank on our side um, to, to house this process. But we also um, introduced uh, waves um, uh, and energy into that water. So as it displaces, well, I, I, you know, so we can lift and fall with them. They, and ultimately, you're empowering the actor to behave as if the parameters of, of their performance is being controlled by an outside force. Um, or affected by an outside force, which is what would happen in water. So uh, there was no other way to achieve it other than actually do it in, in the water volume. So once we built the underwater volume, we understood that the, the contamination from the upper volume and lower volume would be a problem. Um, and, and Jim had had done an underwater shoot for the abyss where they used small beads um, for a safety in order, in order to black out the, uh, the light from above. They used a, a very um, opaque um, bead, which blocked out all the light. We obviously wanted light transfer for our reference cameras, but we wanted it to be uh, uncontaminated by uh, light refraction or light reflection. Uh, so we were, we were able to just produce a very small um, polymer ball that, 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 that allowed light to pass through it without, uh, without creating reflection. Simple and safe. And allowed us then to stack the two volumes, one an air volume, one a water volume, on top of each other, aligned in in geographic space and aligned temporally. So you, you, both volumes are looking at a singular clock. Because uh, mm-hmm. when you're talking about, you know, 60, even 120 frames per second, mm-hmm. um, you, know, uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, milliseconds. Um, and, and ultimately, that's each of the volumes have to speak the same language at exactly the same time for us to be able to recreate the data. So 
<laughs> we, sorry, Zoe, we got we got off tra track there. That was a, a little deeper than you probably wanted. No, that's a fantastic answer because I do know so many people don't have any idea how this was done. So thank you. Yeah. Um, oh, well, it was. I, I'd, I'd like to think um, it, we really ultimately positively positively in, in impacted the actor's ability to be in the moment, and that's ultimately all we want. Again, what we want is the most earnest performance, mm -hmm. because that's you know, whilst these are spectacle movies in a lot of ways, it's big. In it, it's a very intimate story, and it's a, it's about family. And if you don't, if we don't. Um, live and die by our close-ups and and sort of the emotive nature of of the performances. We don't have anything, you know. It, it's it really is a testament to everybody the from all the way from the cast through each and every artist that we have uh, have had on the show to to you know really try to evolve the art the craft and protect the performance. Yeah, it is so true. I, I think it is underrated sometimes how strong the story is. And that's the reason that like we keep coming back to like there is that spectacle that, of course, is so exciting and singular to Avatar. But without the performances and without that narrative and that familial theme, I don't think they would resonate as much as they do. But I think that's what's resonating is that it, it, look, there's a family dynamic there that that I think everybody can recognize, you know, and it's this. Uh, the the conflict between you know father and son and mother and daughter and then the, uh, uh, and the tender moments where, you know when we're given the opportunity to have uh, have quiet time together uh, with characters on screen the fact that they there's there's sometimes this whole scenes there literally is a whole scene in our movie where um, and it happens twice or three times where both adults both parents look at each other and have a whole conversation just by looking at each other about whether or not they get, you know Tonawari and uh, and Kate's character, Ronal, do they have a back and forth where it's just a series of eye darts that, that, that they basically he's asking for permission for them to stay and she gives it and it, it all takes place in, in, in complete silence um, or, or in the absence of dialogue. Um, and so for us, you know, dialogue is a tricky thing. You want to, you, you, for us, we, we always divide it into text and subtext, but probably the singular, the, 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 the single most powerful thing uh, uh, is the is the inner monologue it's mm -hmm. it's what characters are thinking when they're not talking uh, you know and ultimately um, that that's the stuff that's what the, that's what brings your characters to life that's what gives them a soul it gives them you know a sense of of real presence yeah it's all behind the eyes too and i really feel like you can feel the actor come forward on that well that 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 is quite delivery Yes. Um, I did have a question about another one of the new creations for this sequel, um, the Elu, because I know by by all the like behind the scenes footage that it was used like with pool noodles and stuff initially. And I was curious how that then became the creature that we see on the screen. Well, well like everything else, we start with design first. We again ultimately we we were looking for a, a creature that could propel itself through water, not unlike um a, a, you know a, the the agility that a seal has, a sea lion. Um, but but obviously for for traversing bigger uh, and longer distances, we were looking at like the manta rays, uh, and it it is there's there is a conscious decision to have a a, a a creature in the movie that's both appealing and that is essentially for all intents and purposes the, a water horse, you know, mm -hmm. a way to get around. Um, uh, you know, but what we were able to do with that is. Uh, and pool noodles don't quite describe it. We actually built a, a full, a more or less a fully operational um, ELU by way of uh, jet evaders um, and with and sea dudes. So they're, they're, they were motorized propulsive vehicles that that were shaped and driven by stunt guys underwater. And and they ultimately their body played the neck. So when you see our characters reacting to the neck of the creature as it's moving through the through the water, that is in fact a performance. Um, and it's a performance that we honored in the animation when we brought the, the creatures to life. But we, it starts with design. We ultimately, when we have a design, then we come up with a motion vocabulary. We, we were blessed with some amazing animators. We have uh, Eric uh, Reynolds, who's here uh, and embedded. He's one of the, 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 the Prima Weta animators. And uh, he did the original test. And then Andrew Calder had done a, a, a couple of other tests for, for understanding the breakdown of the vocabulary. So we sent, spent... <laughs> A long time working out the uh, initial movement patterns and motion vocabulary for the creatures, and in order to be able to bring them to life in a manner that made sense for the actor. So, in a weird way, we had to animate the creatures before the creatures ever existed. 
uh, you know, and then uh, and you do that based on design, and then in turn, then we we had to recreate that on a physical level in the water, uh, so that we had some sort of um, traversal through the medium. Because again, it gets back to working in water is very different than there. So, so somebody's when you when you start to travel at speed, uh, mm -hmm. it, it gets you get down to literally the skin gets pushed up, and you get these these energy wave fronts that stand the skin up and form these ridge lines that, that you know, shimmer at, at high frequency. All of that uh, we actually studied pretty heavily. We even went down to the Bahamas when we built this jet evader um, and we would have a, 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 a jet ski that was attached to it, uh, riding on the surface, and it was being... Uh, driven, you know, uh, internally by the motor uh, from from that jet jet ski, and it was traveling through space at a fair speed. Uh, and we brought our actors, and, um, and particularly our stunt actors, uh, were able to uh, go down and, and and really evolve what it is we could and couldn't do for um, a motion vocabulary to inform the performance. Um, that was actually a great little trip, but I, I haven't thought about it since. Um, you know, obviously, you get so you get so involved in 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 making it you know, become a reality on screen, you kind of forget the steps. It's only when, when talking to somebody. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I could look, I, I must get you a date on that. I don't know, um, it probably was 2000, early 2018, late 2017 wow. when we did that trip. Wow. Yeah, it, it's so cool to see how long it's taken and how far it's come. I just think like, because you're watching it and I think a lot of people don't always understand the production timeline of a film, let alone something like this and so yeah. to realize that yeah so much of it has been done years prior like five years ago is like crazy oh yeah well i, I again i've had i have three boys uh, the eldest fella is in college and the uh, the the middle two are uh, the, the the middle and the youngest are about to graduate high school and they were all born on the movie it, 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 the, it, 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 well, i tell a lie the first one was not the other two were born on on, on these movies okay. so <laughs> that'll give you a timeline yeah yeah um, I also had a question about your guys' work with the costume and production design department, because I saw yep. a featurette the other week where it was talking about how the, the actual costume designer created the material that the Navi wear, and then it was, like, scanned into the film. And I'm just kind of curious what, like, the communication between you guys is, how the work interrelates and all that. Well, we did, we also did that on the first movie. We, we, we did it a little more extensively on this movie. Um, you know, like Deb Scott is, is, is one of uh, our really, really great secret weapons. Uh, you know, she's able to take what Jim wanted as far as design is concerned and, and realize it in, in textures and textiles that, that allow us to like for us, it, behavior on the, on the digital side is it's, it's imperative for that to feel real, but the only way we know if it feels real or right is to actually build it and test it. So the, a lot of the costumes were built um, with the idea that we would test them in the water. And uh, we were very lucky between the uh, production design department, Dylan and the guys and, and Deb, we were able to do these little work sessions where we, we, when Jim was shooting here on stage, we would have the tank open and we would take uh, Leila, Leia, one of our uh, stunt performers, and Emily, and dress them in full costume and submerge them, fly them around on the rigs, swim, uh, and let them swim around. And again, you get these beautiful ethereal behaviors from, from, from costuming and the hair, um, because again, that's it's the braiding in the hair is very specific. Who has loose hair? Who has unbraided hair? Who has braided hair? That that spoke to behaviors in in water and who would travel. There's a lot of thought in 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 sort of in, in achieving the visual way early as far as behaviors are concerned. And it involved Deb and Dylan and Ben, um, you know, uh, at every turn. So cool. Yeah, I love I love seeing PI yeah, because I think a lot of people sometimes don't always understand how much actual stuff happens in the real world to then impact the production. We have a little museum here, and it's amazing that we, we which is uh, has a bunch of the costumes, and even we we built uh, you know bows and arrows to scale. And when you realize that something is eight foot tall, you know, and you you hand you ask it, or or an arrow is the size of a spear. And you, you you stand up beside a kid and take a photo. And there's, there's because again it, we we introduce our, our Navi characters and then we live at that scale for a long time. And so that becomes normalized, you know. And so the scale doesn't seem too too, too big. And then when you bring a human into the, into it, you go, oh okay, 
There's a, yeah. a, a, a despair proportion. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's a, a, and you want that. You want that suspension of disbelief. You want the audience to go on a journey and forget that they're watching, you know, 10 foot blue aliens. Um, mm-hmm. And they're just, you know, they're watching a family drama in a lot of ways, you know, and they, they, it becomes, um, it, look, a big part of our job is also even in the film language. Uh, you just grounding ourselves in in a film language that's understood by everybody uh, you know that is exposed to media from the time where you're very small very young you, you people don't necessarily understand how sophisticated their their understanding of visual language is because when when you do strange and unreal camera moves it just it's very off button and we could do every single camera could be perfect uh, you know and and ultimately you know John Lando often says that the uh, filmmaking is an imperfect, you know, uh, art form. And so you want those imperfections, but you want the limitations of the camera work that you would see, uh, you know, in a live action movie. So we, we make sure we're grounded uh, in a language whereby we understand what type of practical camera gear it would take, what kinds of cranes, what kinds of dollies, how fast would it move. Literally, we, 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 we try to legitimize every single camera. And, and that in turn makes people hopefully forget, you know, the first 20 minutes of the movie, people are hyper aware of it being in a new world. That by the time you're in hour two, three, and the last, I was very pleased with, with the movie when we saw uh, screenings of it. The, the, the pace it picks up from the time the kids arrive at the island, nobody mm-hmm. seems to, uh, we are, I haven't heard any complaints about length. And it's a long movie, you yeah, know, but it's a, but it's a fast two, two and a half hours, you know, from the time they arrive at the, at the, at the reef. And, um, it just, because it, you know, we, we, we keep the energy up, but, but I think it's also people just forget they're, they're, they're watching a completely CG, you know, almost completely CG movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the film. I've seen it eight times now in theaters and <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. And never notice the length. So I completely agree with you. That okay, is like, good, good. yeah. It's well, like, immersion is a big, it, it, it really is for us. It's a, you know, have people feel like they've gone somewhere, you know, that, that that's one of the reasons why I think this, this movie and these movies in, in general are, will be, and should be more successful as a, as a, a way of screening them on the big screen with an audience, it, you know, that, 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 you know, that, Willingness and commitment to go on a journey with a group of people you don't know, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a in a cinema. I think that that I think lends a, a real weight to this. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a perfect place to wrap everything up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and sharing me so sharing no so much about your incredible work on the film. Best of luck on all the others that are still to come. Uh, we we still have a ways to go. Number three is well on its way, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll 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 see where we are then. <laughs> Let's hope there's still an appetite. Yeah, there absolutely will be. I'm confident. Thank you so much. Thanks, Zoe. Bye. Outcasts, that's all they see. I see. like you and supposed to fight protect the people uh, again thank you so very much um i have a million and one different questions as it relates to avatar but first i just want to say congratulations on your first oscar nominations to both of you Thank you so much. That's exciting. Well, well, yeah, what was that morning like? I don't know if you woke up early to watch them roll in or if you did the thing that I think I would do if I was getting an Oscar nomination, and that would be to sleep until I'm getting phone calls. <laughs> well, I, I figured it was it was a rare chance, so I absolutely set the alarm and uh, did the whole nomination thing just, and you know, because how often is that going to happen? So <laughs> might as well see it happen. So That's awesome. Yeah, I I, uh, I told Dylan the night before. No, no, I'm not going to set an alarm. Nah, it's, I'm, I'm cool, whatever. But of course, I, I woke up. My body woke up at exactly yeah. five a.m. So <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very cute. Hopefully, you got a good amount of sleep after. Although I'm sure, like the adrenaline was rushing, everything was going. <laughs> 
Yeah, plenty of adrenaline and plenty of you know kind people reaching out. So it was, um, yeah, it was it, it was neat. That's yeah. wonderful. It's nice to know how many people are rooting for you in life, and it's great to hear from your team members too. You know, because they take such excitement in their work being acknowledged, which is great. It's always important to be surrounded by just those caring, supportive people. Yeah. You know, we started talking a little bit before we hit record, but it feels very good to talk about this film after like over a decade, close to a decade of you two working on it full-time hands-on really just these last few months since it's released to the public how has this been to see I mean I'm sure it's always surreal just to see something that you've worked so diligently on finally be broadcast to the world be put on that big screen how have these last two months been uh it's been a whirlwind for sure I mean like just I think just pinching ourselves that it's out and you can go see it in the theater (laughs) and like the same way talking about it but uh no, the, the the reception has been amazing. You know, I mean, we, we you know, figured people be interested, but certainly could not have expected this, you know, uh, <laughs> this amount of success. And and just it's just really gratifying to see how many people just truly connect with it, you know. Yeah, I mean, seeing the movie, even for us, right? And you'd think that, that, you know, every person who worked on the movie intensively knows so many things about it, right? You know the story, you know all the plot points, you know the pain it took to get this shot ready and that shot ready. And you've seen even things in you know being developed in visual effects to a final level but you've seen it on your computer screen right and you've seen it out of context without Simon's beautiful music and without the final sound mix from Chris and those guys so um you know it's one thing to know the parts of the chariot it's another thing to see it together and for even for us it's a it's a revelation honestly like the the, the way the movie transports you and gives you this kind of I would call it like a real experience you know you're you're not you're not watching it you're experiencing it along with the characters um is stunning even to us even at the premiere i i, I you know elbowed the uh the stunt coordinator right afterwards <laughs> i said i was like what was that how is that even possible <laughs> everyone was just jaw slacked so so to, to, to experience that for ourselves you know and to know that 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 lightning in a bottle thing can happen again uh and that the world is responding to it is awesome because it, it, it affirms all the work we put in and it, and it sets a great uh ex- expectation for us in the future that if we keep doing a good job it's going to create those experiences yeah, and, and I think what was also special for both Ben and I is that neither of us had seen the movie before the premiere, so we, okay. we were able to, um, you know, obviously we'd seen every single little bit of it, scrutinized it a million times, but but as Ben said, as a whole, we, we had not seen, um, so it was special to see it for the first time with our families, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, in, in, in particular, like, uh, you know, we, we both have boys and so it's, it's, it's so much about fathers and sons, so it obviously, you know, very much connected and, and um, very much so for me, because like fishing was a big part of my family. And so I grew up fishing with my dad and my dad actually passed away on Avatar 1. And now I have my 10 year old boy and we go fishing. So th- like th- there's that strong through line. And the, the, the film is, you know, bookended with that. And so uh, that was that, that that was super special. In fact, I think, you know, Ben and I literally reading the script. God knows how long ago. We're literally right. both in the same room. Like, I'm not crying. You're crying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so. To, to look over and and my son, you know, 10 year old prides himself on not crying during a movie. Sure enough, little tear. I'm like, ha gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> it will get anybody. I mean, just the familial relationships that are really for, like deepened, even though we're meeting a whole host of new characters with uh, Jake's family. Um, I mean, you just connect to them in an almost three hour runtime, if not at a three hour runtime. And it's just incredible how, before I watched the second film, I went back and rewatched the first one because it had been so long. And it's so true how Pandora sucks you in. I mean, I think I remember reading like when the first movie came out, you guys did such a good job that people wanted to live in Pandora. They were sad that something like that. Yeah, Yeah, they were sad that Pandora itself didn't exist. However, we have so much beauty in our natural, natural world that hopefully we still get to enjoy years down the line. I did want to ask a little bit about, you know, that first Avatar film and just how huge of a moment that was for filmmaking and really what was possible at the time. I'm sure that that posed a lot of interesting complexities for your jobs as production designers. I think I saw both of you were in the art department and really working on that conceptual art. Uh, What can you tell me about that period of time and really being handed something so unique and grand as this? You mean specifically on the, the transitioning from from one to the sequels? Um, I would say just the first one, like just at that yeah. time when you were given that project. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, yeah, I mean, we were both sort of kind of like the, the right-hand guy to to the production designers. Like, I was working closely with Robert Stromberg, and, um, you know, Ben was working closely with with Rick Carter. And, um, you know, we, we each had relationship with them. Like, I was good friends with Robert. So it was it was a wonderful opportunity to kind of come in and, and work on something that scale. I don't think any of us really knew. I mean, we knew, okay, it's a new James Cameron film, and that's exciting. But we had no idea about the reception. And it was like, okay, well, this is really cool and different, you know? And, and we were all just kind of just wondering. Like, wow, how's this going to be received? How's this going to be, you know, how, how are we going to pull it off? And so for me, it was just about just an opportunity to do alien world stuff, which is just my, you know, absolute favorite stuff to do and just kind of just throw myself into it. I, you know, I was same side I am now. I was developing a lot of the natural world with the bioluminescence and the floating mountains and the forest and all that stuff. So um, it was very, you know, kind of natural to transition. But yeah, it was, it was a huge responsibility <laughs> once we once Avatar came out and you know saw what you know that that sequels were happening, it was it was a giant responsibility. Um, yeah, I would say that uh, Avatar One was our first contact with with a a school or a philosophy of design, um, which is a little different from how most movies approach things. You know, I mean, we all know that Jim takes a little longer to make his movies than most people do. Right. Part, <laughs> part of that is not just for fun. Um, is is the level of thought that goes into the world building. Um, you know, obviously the story and all the other elements and and how design needs to serve serve the story and, and, and convey that. Um, but that on Avatar, we take the world building element of it, of treating that planet of Pandora and the human technology that's trying to exploit it. Yeah, just just that, um, you know, the mandate on, on doing design for Avatar that we were we we sort of became a part of on Avatar One was to treat everything as if it's real, right? So the planet, the human technology that's bent on exploiting it, you know, all of it, you, you have to approach it from, from in a mindset that, that in fact, it's it's real. We're telling a real story about a real place that's in real danger in some sense. Right. Yeah. Um, and that we, we came across that in Avatar One, because that's how Jim likes likes to think about design. It's, it's a sort of standard that he holds everybody to that you have to do research, you know, whether it's into biology, whether it's into engineering, whatever you're doing, you got to go in, you know, full bore. Um, and make your designs feel real. And, and, you know, part of that, I think he has a satisfaction in the world building, building element, but also there's the fact that it serves the, you know, the film going experience, because if the audience is sitting there scrutinizing and questioning the world, right, it takes them away from, from the story, which of course is the main point. So if you build a world that's badass enough and believable enough that it just overwhelms the mind uh, and, and it gives up fighting that fight, then I think you're in good shape to, to convey your story. Absolutely. Yeah, I always say we kind of approach it from more of like a from like a National Geographic perspective instead of a science fiction film perspective. Mm -hmm. And and that, that that probably was the biggest change for me on the first film was, you know, ha having designed a lot of fantasy worlds and science fiction worlds. But this was the one that was, OK, we're doing all that. But it's held up this level of reality that had been unparalleled in, in, in my career, at least. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like it definitely continues with the second film. Um, you know, we're back in Pandora, although we are exploring a whole new part of it, which really was one of my favorite parts of the film, just to see really how vast this land is. We only it seems like we only touched the surface of it in the first film and hope, hopefully it continues in the next few sequels in terms of expanding. Um, but, you know, did you enjoy that challenge coming up with this whole new design and really having to think outside of the box when it comes to underwater lands and tropical landscapes, all of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was that was what was so exciting about it. I mean, no one wants to go to a sequel and see the same thing again, you know, and so, you know, and, and what's unique about Pandora and it kind of goes back to the whole, you know, science based thing is that like, you know, we, we weren't doing what other franchises do. We're like, oh, there's the jungle planet, the desert planet, you know, the, you know, so people just assume, oh, Pandora's it, it's a tropical planet. And um, so to to show the diversity of Pandora and, you know, it's it, it's and we'll get to explore further biomes in 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 future films, which is, yes. which is <laughs> as well. And so, you know, what, what Jim Bly says, is, you know, Pandora is as diverse as earth. Yeah. And, and that is very exciting. And so um, in, in, in heading out to the oceans, um, you know, we, we had to answer some just basic questions of like, what is sand? Does water react the same? How, you know, rocks and coral, like, okay, let's start at the basics. And then 
just build up from there. And so one thing that was mandated was, again, was the level of realism and working with Jim, who clearly knows a thing or two about the oceans, um, you know, was, uh, you know, he's like, no, water's water. Like we have to respect visibility. We have to respect where things live in the, in, in the water column and depth. And, and so, you know, it, it's, it's not like some other films where you can like see for miles magically underwater and the color doesn't change and all, all, all that stuff. And so, um, you know, it, it was, we think of Pandora being very epic in its, in its grandness and, and layout, but you're confined to smaller environs to, you know, in, in, in the water. So it was, it was designing with that feel, but within a realm of reality. But the, the, the main thing we did was try to make it feel like, like something familiar, you know, so like, okay, we, we, if you haven't been in, you know, whether it's snorkeling or scuba diving yourself, certainly you've seen footage of it. Right. So it needed to feel like that, but be spectacular and new. So similar to how we did with the jungle and the forest in, in, in the first film was there were some touchstones of, of, of recognizable bits where like in the forest, it was like ferns or, you know, something like that, where in, 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 um, in the oceans, we, you know, okay, we're gonna have some, some coral that kind of feels familiar, but then we're going to put it on these giant alien superstructures. And, <laughs> um, and then of course have big alien crazy fans. And then of course populate it with this, um, crazy amount of fish. And, and, and Jim wanted to explore a level of biomass, just meaning pure quantity of life in the oceans that, you know, hasn't existed here on earth since, you know, the prehistoric era. And yeah. so, you know, it, it was just this density. And so, it was just the, the the sheer quantity of like I mean we designed you know hundreds of coral hundreds of fish and you know this is all aside from like from like the hero creatures like the elu and skimwing and Piacon, the tulkoon so it, it really was kind of like ground up and and the only thing to keep us <clears throat> kind of on track because it's so easy to get overwhelmed you're like well I got to design a whole ocean full of stuff and <laughs> it was was servicing the story mm-hmm. you know and that that you know as as much world building as you can do as Ben was saying earlier doesn't matter if it doesn't serve the story. And so, you know, we, we were keen off of key scenes, like, okay, we need, you know, this type of environment, these type of creatures for this. And so it, it sort of grew out of that, that necessity. But um, certainly early on, there was this super fun blue sky phase where we just were, you know, trying to find the boundary. And, and one thing that's great about working with Jim is that he encourages you to, to, to go too far. He wants you to find that limit of, of what is too alien, what is, you know, un, unrecognizable, because to be truly alien would be to, to be unrecognizable, but these are, you know, human stories told on Pandora through Navi, right? But it's still a very human story. And so, you know, you need to relate to it. And so if, if, if the environment is too alien or, or it's off-putting, you know, it's, then, then it's not, not going to succeed. So you have to find that mix where it's alien and spectacular, but still absolutely relatable and, and, and you get it. Yeah, I was going to say on on my side, you know, you, you didn't expressly ask uh, this, but in terms of going to a new environment, number one, you know, I had I had to to figure out a new look for the RDA, a new vibe for their equipment and for everything that they're doing that also felt like a change, right? Because we don't want to see the same old stuff again in in, in a new movie any more than we want to be uh, in the same biome for the whole film. Um, and then and at the same time, a lot of my equipment was both inspired by and limited by uh, the ocean environment that it had to operate in, right? So. The same way that Dylan's looking at real real world reference uh, of animals, which are, of course, perfectly evolved to exist hydrodynamically in their in their ocean environment um, and, and are, are just also fun and evocative for people to see. Yeah. Uh, same things were going into some of our, our vehicles. Right. So we have our crab suit, which is literally a crab uh, <laughs> which on the face of it would be like maybe a more playful thing than you might expect out of an avatar technology movie. But it, it just made the most sense. You know, we were doing designs. Uh, that were a little bit more anthropomorphic, a little more like an upright person, a little more like the amp suit from Avatar 1. Um, and Jim, at some point, was like, guys, you know what? I think <laughs> the answer is staring us in the face. It's a crab suit. It should look like a crab. <laughs> and so, you know, we ended up being very inspired by the sea for its shapes, for its functionality. It ended up doing things that real crabs do in terms of tucking its legs under. Right. Um, so so the, fun of, the fun of Avatar design in, in some ways is this the crossbreeding of, you know, Jim's knowledge bases that we, of course, have to take on and, and, and enter with great research and great respect of, of biology, of technology, of, of being on the ocean, being in the ocean. I mean, this is a man who's built his own submarines and and survived his own near-death experiences, scuba diving and, and all that stuff. And so you're dealing with that context and you want to pull all the rich uh, references and inspirations from that that you can. Um, so 
another example of sort of biomimetic design is more cosmetic one is the sea dragon ship, which is the big 400 foot long whaling craft, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, it needed to look intimidating. So of course, in every detail, we would end up looking at real crane equipment and, and workships and decking and helidecks and, and the br bridge equipment and consoles and holograms, all those things that rooted in being a functional thing, right? We had to do all that stuff. But in addition to that, it had to have a cool look when you just see the damn thing coming for you like yeah a, like <laughs> you gotta run <laughs> on the horizon exactly so it's almost like it had to be designed to give you that feeling that it gives to the to the navi when they see it coming right um and so we looked at manta rays we looked at, at whale sharks we looked at different different sea creatures so that not only would it feel like it is a beast of the sea but that it gives you that emotional uh read when you first see it i was yeah. also going to say just in general how interesting it is to blend the more I guess the more tangible parts of this film in terms of like these ships, the the lab, like seeing equipment that maybe it doesn't exist quite in our world today, but you can kind of feel like it would and it looks like it would versus blending the really fantastical parts of Pandora where we don't necessarily have all of that in our world, but kind of mimic some of the things that we do have. I'm sure a lot of your work also involved collaborating with the visual effects department here and really just bringing everything to life versus, you know, I guess what most people think of as production design and the things that are more available to us in our world. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that collaboration too? And I'm sure how vital it is in a movie such as this. Um, well, we worked together very closely uh, from the very beginning. You know, we started together in late 2013. Um, our offices were side by side. We we were, you know, Dylan and I were creative collaborators kind of from the start in a, you know, in a, in a discussion with Jim and and with a great illustration team that we built around us early on. Um, and so the, the the early creativity was kind of done very much together, you know. And mm -hmm. so as we saw things evolving, we could we could respond to one another's designs make sure that there were things that would obviously be textural oppositions, right? That would clash on screen in a way that you want to show these sort of this collision of cultures that's happening in a story. Um, but at the same time, it, it became very clear to me as I saw the beautiful oceanscapes, for example, that Dylan was developing, that that the RDA designs had to sort of stand out in that environment, right? So I didn't want the RDA boats, for example, to just be totally colorless gray things that would, uh, you know, kind of like blend into the waves or whatever, when you're, you're, you're going to be in complex combat situations where you're seeing them fighting against, you know, these creatures with amazing contrasty, colorful patterning, right? So, so in that sense, I realized that my stuff had to live up to and, and become almost creatures in a way that it had to have graphic accenting and color accents uh, that would give the RDA stuff some pop to, to compete is, is one little example of where, you know, mutual awareness of our work, I, I think, influenced me. Dylan, do you have anything to add to that? Well, yeah, I was going to say just, just something as simple as those lines, like you put a yellow accent on the picador, not an orange one, because the orange one was on the skin wing, right? So it's just like, <laughs> let's just not overlap color palettes. Um, one, one one funny collaboration thing is like, one thing that's great about the uh, creatures on Pandora is that you can have large animals, you know, have very striking, colorful patterns, such as the Leomotrix that we saw in, in the first film. So in, in designing the Tulkum, <clears throat> I thought that was a really fun opportunity to kind of create this, you know, whale-like creature, but with a very exotic um, color pattern. So originally I was trying to push for something even crazier color where it's like, no, it's like a giant tropical fish. But then <laughs> when you see him like flopping on the sea dragon deck, it's, it got like, that's such a dramatic moment when he, mm -hmm. you know, when he preaches and he lands and he's just laying waste to it with his fence. When, when, when you see that, you're like, okay, that's a dramatic moment. You don't want to be distracted or laughing. <laughs> Because this thing is just so bright. You're like, okay, we went too far. Let's it has back. 50 colors. <laughs> yeah. And just, I was, you know, much more saturated just because like, you know, I was, you know, we're, we're taking inspiration from tropical fish and, you yeah. know, those uh, crazy patterns. So it's like, okay, we're going <laughs> to tile it back a little bit, but, you know, he still has, you know, very strong coloring with his, you know, his red crest and some of the yellows and blues and greens in his back, but we had to like rein it into, to, you know, something not quite so garish just so that it would all, it would all sit together. But yeah, it was it was just those little crossovers, especially in that battle, and also like going through like the 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 kelp forest and making mm -hmm. sure everything all worked together, you know, pretty pretty seamlessly. It makes sense why it took almost a decade <laughs> for yeah. this film to 
to be finished, but I mean, it's such an extraordinary visual masterpiece. I mean, just like the first one 10, 10 plus years ago really kind of set a standard for what could be done in filmmaking. I feel like this one really repeats itself in that way, too. So um, it was such a pleasure to speak with both of you about this. It always is so extraordinary to to really learn more about the magic of filmmaking and really all that is possible in someone's head, too, nonetheless. <laughs> Well, our pleasure. So nice to meet you. And there's always, you know, we could do it again. There's there's always a hundred times more stuff to talk about than we can yes. cover. And this yes. is I haven't even said a word about the Mikaina. That was the biggest challenge of all. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll be able to chat for the third, the fourth, and the fifth movies too. <laughs> and again, really congratulations on on not just the film, but um the honors that you've been recognized for thus far and hopefully even more good news to come. Oh, well, thank you so much, and thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about it. Thank you. Let's get it done. Okay, well, I do first want to talk about, I guess, because we're going to be building up from the ground up. I'd love to know a little bit about what gathering production sound was even like on a film like this, where so much is going to be augmented and redesigned in post. I know Cameron did build a number of practical sets and rigs that you were shooting fight scenes and such on, but tell me a little bit about what it was like recording on set audio for this. Um, it's it's really exciting because, you know, it's... Um, it it's it's a, it's a director and his actors. It's like a theater. It's a stage. It's a director and his actors. There's no camera moves. There's no lighting time to light it. There's nothing else. It's just Jim interacting with actors and getting a performance. And then the environment that they're acting in. So anything that they interact with, we build. And so, you know, and you all know that that's going to be augmented afterwards by Weta, which they've done you know, another amazing job. Uh, but, you know, the one thing that we did know is that the one thing that carries through that and the one thing that we're capturing on that performance capture stage is the performance and that an audio is that's that's what it is and so the the responsibility at the start there is you know it's that's we need to get that because this is the performance that's going to carry through it's the one thing that on stage as you're looking and listening to it that's going to make it into the final film the performance and the sound Right. And then, you know, everything else is going to be, you know, all the performance and the dialogue and everything else is going to be integrated. And so, you know, we were told at that point, it's like, you know, bring your A game. Um, it's uh, it's a very different environment compared to anything else. Uh, it's very um, intense. There was a there's a certain aspect of it that's, um, you know, the amount of data that we're using, you know, we we um, mic'd everybody on set. It was very much a Robert Altman kind of vibe. Mm. Jim would like everybody to talk and everybody had to make so he could pick bits out. And there's a really naturalistic part to that that you can that you can you can hear in the film. And so, you know, that's the first bit is, is you come in and go, okay, we have 24 people on stage and they're all gonna speak. Everybody's oh, gonna speak at once. Oh we're gonna pick performances out. And you know, and then it's a conversation between myself and Jim of like which performances would we like? Where does he want to concentrate on this little bit of the thing? But everybody else keeps going. And then he can go back in the edit and say, well, I kind of quite like that line there. I'll pick that out and we'll do this. And and so it starts with that. And so it's like the enormity of it. You kind of go, oh, okay, this is massive. Uh, and then your responsibility. And then also, you know, you're looking across and there's James Cameron. Um, so it's you know, all, all that. It, it, it builds up. And then... And then it was, um, you know, for me, it's about eliciting performances as well as capturing them and protecting them. You know, we're, mm. we're on a grey stage, we're on a performance capture stage with no costumes, no real sets. So how do we elicit a performance just to help people along? How do we make them believe that you're in a Pandoran forest or by the ocean or under the ocean or or under fire or on a ship or on a, you know, how do we do that? And and we came pretty early on, we came to use um, audio around on stage and mm. in ear is where we created i used a, a lot of the sound files that chris boys actually created in the first film <laughs> it, you know, not chris Boyd, but in, in the first avatar film that was all brought in so we used that and augmented that and so when you come on stage you'd feel in a way if you close your eyes you could hear pandora is what, what we're trying to do so oh, it, it was a, a way to set the stage to help elicit a performance and a truth that he wanted to get to and then from there on 
you know, it, it, we we made cues, we had gunfire, we could make the props, we make the you know, the props could make sound for gunfires, explosions, and we'd do secret explosions on occasion, you know, where Jimmy <laughs> say hide a speaker. So you could make an actor would actually jump. You could make them Oh jump my god. I can remember the one bit it was Sig. It's it's Sig and she's tied on the ship and the Talcoon breaches. And at that point I had a sound, it was like a sound of a breach. It wasn't a breaching well. I had there was there was like all sorts of water effects and I layered it. It was just like just make this explosive water thing. And it was like, don't tell anybody you're gonna do it. And so we spent through this whole rehearsal. And then the first reaction you get, and Sig, I can remember Sig jumping on this thing. And and and, and Jim looked at me and went, We've got it. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, that's the thing, that's what I want to elicit from it, is this this bit, just to, just that one reaction. And it's maybe like two seconds on screen, but it works. And so, you know, it was, it was helping that. Um, and then it was developing new um, systems and ways to work um, in a giant water tank. Cause you know, there's a lot of performance capture that we did in water. We developed right. entire new performance capture systems to work underwater. We also had to develop audio systems to work under that same water. So Jim had to communicate with actors at 30 foot depth. Actors had to be able to communicate with him in the middle of a giant pond where he was maybe a good 30 yards away on top of a bridge. He kind of had a bridge that commandeered this whole tank. And so it was all about communication. It was about how do we get dialogue and microphones to work from 30 foot depth that they come straight up and they break the surface and we want it to be crystal clear to be able to capture mm -hmm. a breath or a gasp. Um, and so it was, you know, how do we do all that? And we ended up, we built things and we we had a research and development project that was going in line with filming on the other stages where we were building and testing waterproof casings for recorders in RDA masks. And and we built all that sort of stuff just, just to enable that, that once we got to the filming stage, that all this stuff would work, Jim could communicate, and then the machine could keep on, keep on rolling, as they say. And then it was, um, and then I had the, joy of a of a production sound mixer is that i was brought a little bit more into post-production mm. which is something that you kind of finish a film and i walk into the next film and and and, and i get a couple of phone calls from post or whatever and i got to join in with recording in what you know adr or what we called fpr and so i, I it was it was a real eye-opener for me it was a huge uh, uh, a lot more responsibility and something I really, I think I wanted to put my teeth into and hugely yeah. enjoy. Well, so it sounds like you had a very, very substantial role on this. That's really cool because I, I did wonder in a film like this where so much was done with VFX, uh, you know, how much production sound will be involved in. It's substantial, it, clearly. It's, like, it's everything. It's the whole story and everything that they did. It, it's, the, it's the bit that we have to get through is that, Every movement and every action and every scene that you see on that screen, that was done on a stage. Mm -hmm. or so Julian put all these effects and like the sound of the forest and all that kind of stuff. Then he had to come back and we had to do an ADR and FPR because we couldn't use the background sound. So he did. Oh, my God. <laughs> OK, well, uh. I I could hear about this all day on the production level because I'm obsessed with those BTS videos, but I do want to hear some about what Gwen did. So the magic. I think it, well, the magic. I I believe it, and we're about to hear it. I think a good place to start is I think at the the sound bake off. You guys selected a clip. I think it was when Loak meets Pyakon for the first time. So that uh, clearly your team thought that was a particularly standout moment. So why don't uh, Gwen, why don't you tell me a little bit about kind of designing that particular scene? That scene um, was really just a beautiful combination of Simon Franklin's music work and, and Dick Bernstein, who's a, uh, the, the sort of music supervisor on it, and Chris Boyce's work with PyCon and also no one will ever know this, but the dialogue is a combination of Julian's production work, which we edited. It's a mm. combination of Julian's work and also the ADR work and also this kind of this program called MAL, which uh, Marty Kwok and Emil, sorry, I can't remember his name, they've through Peter Jackson's company designed where so, for instance, on the set, there's a guy who played Pyacon. He just kind of would, 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 would roar and bellow. He's he's <laughs> and, and and it overlapped with um, with Loak's dialogue. And we had him in to do ADR, but he didn't quite. So, you know, sometimes the ADR, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The original performance was 
clearly much better. So we use this program called MAL. Again, I don't know how it does it, but it somehow can take the, 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 the guide being PyCon and separate it from LOAC and you don't lose it. You, there's no artifacting mm-hmm. sound process and, and it, it pulled it apart. So we could use clean LOAC for the lines and then put, you know, that way we can put uh, the real, well, I guess you, the the uh, the PyCon that we know and love is his dialogue in for that. Um, we also did ADR for the breaths and stuff like that. But that that Mal program was phenomenal. The other thing that Julian didn't say is that when they first started shooting in the tank, because of the camera and the need for light, they had all these plastic balls. So a lot of the stuff in the water, all the dialogue was covered with the sound of plastic balls, which of course you can't use because oh my god, balls. <laughs> So um, we used, we did ADR for, to clean up some of it, but we also used this mal program to put, it would pull apart the balls and, and the ambience and, and, and anything else. And so then if you wanted, you could just have the ball noise, which of course you didn't, but you could have all those things. So that was the dialogue side of it. Um, the effect side of it, Chris Boyce, who's a brilliant sound designer, and Dave Kraska, who's sort of the main, he helped, he did a lot of the recordings. They went all over the place and they recorded humpbacks and and owls and coyotes and and all sorts of strange sort of um creatures to create this language for PyCon or, or create the, the 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 beeps and the whistles and the, the things that would comprise something that would have a syntax to it they tried um they tried human voices like um kevin dorman's the guy who played PyCon on the set we had him come back in and try and do stuff but it kept sounding human yeah. so in order to sell the fact that this is a giant aquatic mammal that, they between Jim and Chris, they decided it made more sense to go with a, a sort of a designed version of those kind of sounds. Hmm. So that was made. And um, then you have to sell the idea that this sort of human type person and this giant whale can communicate and that they sort of instantly become friends and they have to form this bond. And so you have to create the music helps tell that story, but also the, um, the the sound effects are not aggressive. They're very gentle. They're very they they start off kind of other than the sort of the shock of the that wakes him up, but then they start getting playful. And they, you know he kind of goes around. He does a little come play with me. I can't do the sounds because I'm not a whale. But you know he then <laughs> says yeah come play with me. And so all those things lead into uh, combine to make it a very sort of joyful event. Oh, it's a beautiful scene. Yeah, um, I think I think the clip is a clip shows that it's it 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 it's also it's not the um, presence of noise. It's also an absence and a quietness that and a delicateness, mm. which is why that clip was shows it's delicate and it's the the lapse of water from a violent sea when it first starts out to a calm, playful sea when it finishes. It's also and, a relief because you start with um, the Akula, which is that shark type thing. Yeah. Um, the other kind of cool thing, uh, sharks have no vocal cords. They can't make any sound. So at first it was like, how come you don't hear anything when he opens his mouth? Oh, because because it's based on a shark. So you don't have, oh. they don't, they don't make sound. So it actually, it's a, a biologically correct sort of um, for that. And so it was a, a lot of that was about the impacts and the shock and that kind of stuff. So when you come out of that scene, the dynamics from that scene to coming up on a pie con, con really sort of, they, they give the audience an ear break, number one. And it, it helps also sell the whole, um, the uh, kind of the wonder of PyCon and their meaning. I know Cameron is obviously a stickler for research and scientific accuracy in a lot of ways. What kind of research and work did, I guess on both in the production sound level and then also in post, what did you do to kind of replicate what sound sounds like when it is underwater without making it sound awful i mean like that's that, that's an interesting line to tread well you know when you're i mean everyone's well maybe not everyone most people have been in a pool or the ocean so when you go underwater there's a, there's a, a dampening effect mm-hmm. the deeper you go the more the, the sort of the more you, see, you feel the subs more you feel not that i've ever been 30 feet underwater but i think that you know it just feels kind of it just feels closer so you sort of recreate you know you deal with the subs and the highs and you kind of you know, depending on where you are, like the hand movements when the the guys are underwater, when they're kind of making fun of Loak, those are very sort of deep. They're not the same kind of sound that you would hear with your moving water at the surface. Mm. And I think we had a great description from Jim because he's been to the deepest place in the ocean. So he knows. <laughs> yeah. 
of all people to know how sound would alter from a surface to the deepest place in the ocean is James Cameron. I mean, he's been there, you know, and, and it's this scientific approach of, of and, and, and that went for a lot of stuff for his sound effects. It, would, it was all based in science and based in like, well, how would this happen? Like, like the Akula, there are no vocal cords. That's what the creature's based upon, so you have to base it upon this. There's no just making this. Everything has a story and a reason why it is why it is and a link to the natural world that we uh, on Earth. There's a link to that in Pandora. We also talked, yeah. We also talked. I know Chris talked a lot to the um, the production designers about hmm. the you know the various you know the sea dragon, the various vehicles, and the, the the you know the choppers, all that kind of stuff, to make sure that we understood what they were doing with those. So again, we had you have to sell that as believable. You have to sell the sound of particular turbine. You have to sell the sound of the way it's getting, it's hovering over the water and when it touches down, how how. How light is it? How heavy is it? So he communicated very directly with the production designers. Well, guys, I wish I could talk all day about how this film sounds. It's it's extraordinary. And I can't wait to hear what else you all bring for the next one. I think we're getting a lot of fire. So I can't wait to see how you play with that. I, I'm not going to say anything at all, so I'm not going to work again. <laughs> I don't know anything. Uh, I, don't know anything. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's oh, going to be exciting, yeah. but I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys, and uh, best of luck this Oscar season and on the next film. Thanks. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Zoe Rose Bryant's interview with the visual effects supervisor for Avatar The Way of Water, Richard Benham. Emma Sassick's interview with the production designers Ben Proctor and Dylan Cole, and Will Mavity's interview with the sound mixer Julian Haworth and sound editor Gwendolyn Yates-Whittle. All of them are up for your consideration at this year's Academy Awards, and Avatar The Way of Water is nominated for Best Picture of the Year. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.